curious minds and welcome to the last episode of Mentorless Podcast Season 1. I'm your host, Nathalie Sejean, and I'm ending Season 1 after 10 episodes because in 24 days from now, I'm going to shoot a short film in Turkey that will serve as proof of concept for my feature film. If you'd like to know more about it, go to chloe.mentorless.com. I'm currently running an old-school funding campaign with perks tailored for screenwriters, filmmakers, and storytellers. If you're into creative process and continuing education, I think you'll find them enticing. Back to our guest now. In this episode, I interview German writer-director Ivy Jelizavak, with whom I deconstruct the making of her web series, Relationship. Ivy has a clear vision of where she's heading and the brand she wants to build. During our conversation, we talk about how she decided which project to pick when she was at the crossroad of opportunities, how she wrote the screenplay for her web series, what having a business mindset as an indie filmmaker really means, why she decided to book an industry premiere before the web series was done, and the benefits of doing so, the challenges and opportunities to have a Patreon as a filmmaker, and much, much more. I am very happy to end this first season with Ivy's journey. I hope you enjoyed the ride for the last six months, and I'm sure you will enjoy this one. Happy listening, and I'll see you on the other side. Ivy, welcome to the show. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for having me. You're a filmmaker, you're a screenwriter, you're a producer also, I think. Uh, writer-director. You're a writer-director. This is how you present yourself? Yes. Perfect. Today we're going to talk about the making of a web series. A web series you uh, created and you directed and you're currently in the process of distributing name relationship. And we are going to go through each step together. But first, I would like you to tell us where you're from and where you live currently. So I was born in Bosnia um, at the time Yugoslavia. I came to Germany as a baby. I'm a German national and now I live in London in the UK. Um, my American accent has nothing to do with anything. I just watched too many American shows when I was a teenager. How, how long has it been since you moved to London? Four years. Four years. We met actually in 2013 at the very first uh, mentorless meetup which was in London uh, where I also met Portia who was a guest on this podcast. Somehow this meetup uh, created a lot of network within a handful of people. Um, so you had just arrived in 2013? 14, yeah. Ah, 14, was it 14? Wow. I want to talk with you about your project relationships because even though now there is more re web series, it's still a process that is uh, rare and that asks for a very specific muscle of persistence, I guess. So first, maybe why don't you start by telling us briefly what uh, relationship, or, or maybe not. Start by telling us when and how did you get the idea about the story that would, beca would become relationship? Yeah, so I... Um, was always interested in series and in longer form content. So I did a few short films. I'm also doing one this summer. But I find it difficult to find stories that I find interesting uh, that fit into like a five, 10 minute format. So Relationship is actually 90 minutes long in total. It's eight episodes times um, 11 minutes, roughly. And I had the idea for the main character, Zoe, um, a long time ago, I think like five years ago. And then I had some 
as we all have had uh, some funny dating experiences. And I was typing to somebody, and instead of relationship, I made a typo and called it relationship. And that was the moment where I, where I thought, that's an amazing title for a show. And then the character that I had in mind actually fit really, really well into that uh, kind of world. And that was at the end of 2013. And that's where I got the idea. So it started with the character. And from there, the story kind of sprang out. So once you had this character and you had this title, what was your next step? Because I am guessing you didn't tell yourself right away, I'm going to make a web series. In 2013, it was... I don't know. You tell me, actually. It was, actually, yeah. I, um, I've been wanting to make a web series for ages. So one project that I saw and loved was Awkward Black Girl by Issa Rae. She now has an HBO show called Insecure. So I'd always kind of thought that I want to make a web series, but I didn't know about what. So for a while, um, in my early 20s, when I when I was in that time of, you know, what do I want to do with my life? It, it all feels like a very important time because every decision you make there feels like it's gonna you know change the course of your life um more than maybe later um so i thought i was gonna maybe make a web series called quarter life crisis but i couldn't really find anything there that i could obsess over so when relationship came along i don't i'd already decided i wanted to make a web series ideally and yeah so to, to then create a web series from obviously a title and one character i started thinking about um not only her storyline, because hers was kind of very clear to me. So Zoe is this really obsessive, in-your-face, kickboxer person. So I uh, I had the idea for this more shy, inhibited character called June, who discovers her, well, not discovers, explores her sexuality more. And then another character, Roman, who's this really stoic, doesn't like to have feelings or talk about feelings. And he's Zoe's best friend. So the clash between those two worlds was really interesting and gave me a lot of story ideas. And the three of them are roommates or housemates. So that's uh, that's kind of where I started. So what would be interesting situations to put these characters in to make it a compelling thing to watch? So you, you start building up the story. But what's interesting to me is that at the same time, you had just moved in uh, a new country. Yeah. <laughs> so you were writing in English, obviously. H how did it work for you once you were writing the story? Did you start multitasking? And by that, like, did you write one episode and try to make it as a short? Or you, write, you wrote everything at once and you started trying to find people? Can you walk us through that? Yeah, so I arrived actually just before New Year's Eve 2013 because I like to be dramatic and the new country and the new life was going to happen at the new year. Um, so I um, I arrived there with 300 pounds in cash and like a credit card. Um, and I knew like one person there that I could stay with for like a few weeks. So I gave myself a deadline of three months. And if I liked it or had made it or could survive after three months, I would stay. And if not, I can just go back to Germany. Like that's the, the kind of thing that I would tell myself to, to make scary stuff less scary. And then actually after three months, I started getting a lot of corporate video jobs that I wasn't expecting. So somebody that I had met through sports <laughs> uh, had introduced me to another guy in filmmaking like a year or two ago. And then that guy needed a director 
in Berlin, where I lived before that. And I said, well, actually, I'm in London now. And he was in London, too. So that's how I kind of accidentally got like a big branded video, which at the time for me was the biggest budget I've ever worked with. But obviously, I didn't tell anyone that. So I had this, I bought a nine pound blazer at Primark <laughs> and walked walked into the agency and said, you know, I'm the head of the friction, my production company. It was me with one suitcase. Like I had one casual outfit, one work outfit, and like one one thing of workout clothing. So it was a really kind of tumultuous time, but somehow it all worked out. So at the very beginning, I wasn't working on relationship a lot. I was just kind of surprised that I was making money. So I kind of rode that wave, um, did a lot of corporate video production. And then after three months, um, had the money to move into, into a room and decided I was going to stay. And that's when things settled down a little bit. And I started writing in really short spurts, actually, like maybe 20 minutes at a time. I know a lot of writers say that they need to like block out the weekend or they need to get up at like 5 a.m. so they can write for three hours. And I'm not like that at all, unless there's a deadline, maybe. <laughs> but generally, for me, it just worked a lot better to because I know that I'm quite creative in the evenings. So, you know, after 7 p.m., clients don't really expect you to be available for them anymore. So that's the time that I was using to write. And it was, I generally had, like, I love to outline. So I started with an outline of what do I want to happen in this series, then what happens in each act. So I split it into about three parts. And then I actually tried to apply this like eight beat structure to it. But that was, that didn't really work because it's a web series. It's not a feature film. So the story thrusts had to be quite different. And the difficult thing at the time was web series weren't yet a thing or like short form series weren't that big. So there wasn't like an instruction manual on how to write a web series. So I had to throw all of that away. Um, I used to really like structure and found it really kind of reassuring to know when, uh, when what should happen kind of. Um, and instead I just started thinking about what would be interesting in an episode to happen. So what could be a good cliffhanger? Um, just what would be interesting to watch? So instead of having that, that, that security of the structure, I just kind of went in there. So, while you were uh, writing, outlining, and starting to shape the story, did you have any creative constraints? Were you trying to think about uh, locations you could have, or were you trying to think about the budget? Like, was your writing just focused on the storytelling at first, or were you already in a producing type of uh, mode? Yeah, so I, I knew that I was probably going to produce it myself because you can't really take a web, like a short web series to, to a distributor. Or so I thought. We can talk about this a little later. But I, I did have a little bit of a production mindset in the back of my mind. But contrary to the advice that most people get and give, I didn't write for the resources I had. I just wrote something that I wanted to watch or thought that was interesting. So I kind of decided I'm just going to write this story and then I'll just see how to do it. And it was such an impossible process that I'm really gr glad I didn't know that because go going in, if I'd known what I'm signing up for, I probably wouldn't have done it. But just taking it step by step in the end, it wasn't, I mean, it was still really annoying. <laughs> Um, to try and find really difficult um, places like locations on no budget. And it took a long time, but um, I'm actually quite glad that I did it the way I did instead of just focusing on like a story that could play in a bedroom. At what moment in the process did you start trying to build a team or even casting? At what moment uh, the writing and the other uh, steps overlapped 
you started writing in 2014. Mm-hmm. When when did you started sharing your screenplay or screenplays? I'm, I'm not sure how we're supposed to say it. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> it's unclear. And uh, you know, uh, wh- what was the when was the next step, and what did you decide doing? Now that you've asked me that, I just realized something, and it was like three quarters of a year. And actually, my first screenplay also took like nine months, like a baby. <laughs> That was about the timeline. And the first thing that I did is casting. I love casting. And like the way I approach that is I um, just posted ads online. So luckily, nowadays, you don't have to like run around film schools and put up papers anymore. You can just post something from your computer. And then um, kind of pre-selected, well, one actors that could act. Sometimes um, you get applications from people that are only starting out or that they don't have any um, previous material to show. So I first sorted because you're going to you're going to get a lot of applications. So for, you know, an actress, like a female actor in her like 20s, early 30s, you're going to get 200 applications for just that. So casting was the first thing that I did. And then actually at the mentorless meetup, (laughs) that's where I met Anna. Um, She was here to study. She was from the Philippines and she was here for like a year. So she wasn't there for the entire process because of her visa, but she was such a big help that I'm actually happy to say I probably wouldn't have done certain things if if she hadn't been there. So she was, I mean, it's hard to say because it's a no budget production. So people take on roles that are not as defined as they are in a commercial production, um, kind of production manager, production assistant. So she was helping with um, sourcing locations, researching stuff. She had some personal contacts who let us shoot at their house. Let me go back to the casting process. You did the whole casting by yourself or you had someone with you? Nope, just me. And how long did it take for you to cast your, uh, I would say, at least your main, your three Uh, lead characters I think maybe three months but I mean what does three months mean you know because I I wasn't doing it eight hours every day for 90 days but from the from the time I posted it through to the auditions then like deciding on who it was going to be I think it was it was January 2015 so what was the sell mean and by that I mean were you telling them it's to shoot a web series that is going to be shot over the course of a week or two weeks, or we're going mm-hmm. to shoot two days every blah blah blah? How how are you uh, how are you uh, making sure they would stick to the project? I mean, the making sure that people stick to the project I think happens later on. It doesn't necessarily um, happen at sign up because you know. Like, like like me, I wasn't sure what I was signing up for when I started. I think for each actor, we needed maybe like two weeks of their time because not, I mean, not every day was a full shoot day because we were working with so many people's schedules. But I make, I made sure to mention that, you know, I was a professional director. So at the time I was working full time as a director, even though it was branded video, which is different from narrative. But still, I mean, I'm in the industry. I know how things work. I'm I'm conscious of scheduling so that I can promise we're not going to be there for 16 hours eating Tesco sandwiches and that I had a professional DP and that we were going to shoot on, uh, we shot on an FS7, which it has more of a corporate look, but it is a good camera. So it wasn't like we were shooting on, on a DSLR or like an iPhone or something. So I, I made sure to explain and to give evidence for the professional standard that we were going to have on set and that the result was also going to be quality. So you had a DP already, uh- Uh, at the mm-hmm. time, 
it was a DP you've met uh, while doing your uh, corporate videos? No, so this is going to be a little love story. <laughs> so, uh, so I moved to London um, just before, on, on New Year's Eve, basically. So in, um, in I think in February 2014, I um, needed a piece of equipment that I didn't have, like a sound recorder. And before coming to London, what I'd done is I went on Twitter and I followed like everyone who was like film London related. So I followed a whole bunch of people. And one, one of them was at the time an aspiring cinematographer. And I posted that I needed this, this thing of equipment and He said he had that and we weren't living too far apart. So we come, we met up. Basically, he thought he was maybe going to get hired because I was, you know, a director producer. And I just thought I'm going to get some free equipment out of it. And that's how I met my boyfriend. <laughs> so then we met and then in person, we actually kind of liked each other. And we ended up like talking for a few hours. And he at the time was like a dude with a camera and I was a chick that had just come, you know, over with, with a suitcase. So we weren't like big shots at all, but throughout the process, I mean, Adrian just came back from New York shooting, shooting a thing for Netflix. So he's fancy now, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So we, we started working together on um, some corporate projects and I thought, Oh, you know, this guy's actually quite good at like camera stuff. And by then we were also both, both working full time doing that. He had just made a career change. So then by the time we started shooting relationship, he had, he had better equipment he had more experience he was a really good dp so that was um yeah that was one of the of the lucky things to but it was funny to shoot something called relationship with somebody that you're in a relationship with and actually on our first date i told him about the project and i said that he has to behave otherwise i'm going to put him in it <laughs> During the beginning of uh, 2014, we also uh, met at uh, this mentorless meetup we keep talking about. And that's where you met with two people, Anna and Abdul. I would like you to talk to me, talk to us a little bit about this, because I think it's, it's very interesting, two things. The first is that this type of events can actually be useful. I think it's very hard to go to networking events and actually have something interesting happen. But when they do, it's amazing. And you, you're one of these uh, perfect examples to me. And the second thing is that but at the time, you didn't have much, which is something I also find very interesting because you were at the very early stage of your project. And yet you managed to kind of leverage the fact that you were working on this project to meet the right people for you to keep on moving forward. So... Uh, for people who don't know anything about Anna and Abdul and everything, can you explain a little bit more? Yeah, so um, Anna was there. She was um, she was studying, so she was a student, and she was looking to um, to get some experience in production. Uh, and Abdul actually, I just kind of hogged him for the evening. Like I didn't even know what he did um, professionally, but we just kind of we happened to sit next to each other, and he asked about my project, and I mentioned relationship, um, which is what, what Anna overheard, and then later uh, took me aside and said, hey, do you need any help with that? And I was like, oh my god, you're an angel. <laughs> and the other thing that was happening at the time is I was writing my first feature film, Creme Brulee, And I told Abdul about it and he, you know, he asked some questions. I explained kind of the story and he asked me what I did for a living. And I said, I was a director. And he said, no, I know, but what do you do for money? And <laughs> that is one of the most satisfying things ever because I could respond, I'm a director. 
And it was, you know, branded content and corporate stuff, but still it's different than than working in a completely unrelated industry. And then Abdul gives me his, his business card and he works for this big like studio distributor. They own a bunch of production companies. And I was like, holy shit. And then I went home and had to finish that screenplay. And I wrote between like seven, seven and 14 pages a day. And that was that like deep work kind of thing on it. Like he didn't give me a deadline. I told him I could send it by by the 1st of April or by end of April or something like that. And the script didn't exist. Like I knew the story, but it didn't exist. So I uh, I wrote that thing in like three weeks and sent it over and then actually got a meeting with the acquisitions manager for that feature film. And that's been, that's been on ice actually um, because of relationship, because I wanted to finish that. And I thought that if I go into... Um, production was something new it would be good to have a finished project as my calling card because at the time I had done like a few short films and some corporate stuff but I wasn't really like anyone but yeah basically because I went to like have a beer with this chick whose blog I read <laughs> I got the foot in the door with, <laughs> with, with somebody who could make a, a real difference to my career and yeah, then it then they gave me feedback for the script. I I started working on, on on that, and then relationship production kind of started revving up. And I said, you know, I have to pause this for a little bit because I'm working on relationship. And then Abdul emails me, "What's relationship? Can you show me a bit about that?" So um, it's not like any of this was like a firm commitment. It was just interest. Um, so he said, you know, when it's finished, um, show it to us. I can't promise anything, but, you know, show it to us. And something like that is a huge motivator because it's not just my friends from school telling me that, oh, you know, this, this thing that you made is good. It was that somebody in the industry who, who didn't have a reason to tell me that something was good if it wasn't. On the contrary, I mean, they get, you know, so many pitches. That was like one of the driving, driving things throughout the entire process, that there was somebody real that saw potential in my work. Something I found interesting, when they read Creme Brulee and they showed some interests, since relationship was something you were producing and self-financing, did you have this moment where you thought, maybe I should put relationship on the side and move forward with this project that has bigger players attached to it? Or not, they were not attached, but let's say were yeah. showing interest and maybe in two years they won't. Yeah, um... So that's been a worry, definitely. But I just emailed them and I said, you know, is there any sort of time limitation on this um, because I'm shooting this thing? And their response was the worst thing that I've ever heard, which is there's no deadline, just make it perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, I was sporadically in touch and I emailed them once every half year or something. But yeah, it was definitely um, a consideration. What made you decide but to because push I, with relationships? Yeah, um, basically... A few things. So one one thing that's important to me, especially in this kind of day and age, is to have an audience. So I I just wanted to build you know my, build my audience with something that um, that I made, which is funny because now relationship is actually not online for free, <laughs> um, but it's going on the festival circuit because some people said it might be um, it might be worth trying to do something bigger with it. Um, but I think the reason that I pushed forward with the relationship was also that I had just. I'd already committed to all these people and we started scheduling and we, we were about to shoot and I wasn't going to pull out at that point, I think. Um, and also because they didn't make me, like, I don't want to say, you know, 
who exactly it was because like I said, there's no formal interest there, but um, they <laughs> um, didn't make me feel like there was like a ticking clock on it. And I also thought that I didn't say this, but I thought I would be more valuable if I could, well, first of all, show what this chick can do with a charged cell phone and like five pounds, which is how I'm in relationship. Um, and also just to have something to show um, that I made. So with, with Creme Brulee, I'd actually expected that they would maybe just like buy the screenplay and attach a different director. But um, through getting to know me a little bit, it kind of felt like there was a chance for me to also direct it, which would have been a dream or which would be a dream. So I wanted to have a good calling card for that. Hmm. So to come back to relationship, once you've, you, you were done with the screenplay, the episodes, production started gaining uh, speed, I guess. How did you deal with the budget? Was it like, I have this much of money, let's see what we can get, or uh, we need this much of money, let's see how we, we can get the money? Oh, girl, I did it the worst way. <laughs> um, Basically, so I'll say I'll say the number in a bit, but I want to explain um, about how we approached it. So basically, I started instead of doing pre-production on every scene of the eight episodes, I just selected the ones that were fairly easy and cheap to shoot and did them first. So anything that was, you know, in my bedroom or that was in the public somewhere in London or anything that um, didn't have sound maybe or anything like that, um, I did those first. So there, the only costs were um, transportation and food. And like I said, and I really want, like, I want to be on the record for saying this. You cannot serve people Tesco sandwiches that are working for you for free. You just can't, like, that's such a rude thing to do. Um, so to the point where, like, sometimes I would stay up in the evening and just cook for people or just prepare something that was, you know, like a dignified meal because also – you're not going to get a good result from people if they've been working for 16 hours for a week and you've not been feeding them. They're sleep deprived, they're malnourished, they're not going to give you their best kind of creative effort. It's not like a factory where people do, you know, just something by, you know, like on, on, a, on an assembly line. It's creative work, so people need to be in a good state. So when when we did all of that, we started looking for Uh, the locations that were a little bit more specific, so things like shops, restaurants, the gym, uh, things like that. So that's where Anna um, came in. So she was um, she was emailing people, and we decided to offer to make promotional videos for them in exchange for them letting us shoot in their locations uh, for free. So that's that's one way to get locations that you can afford to pay because a location like a cheap location costs you two hundred pounds a day. And shooting in London is not like somewhere else. So back when I was at home, if you if you told someone you're shooting a movie, they'll be like, yeah, you can shoot in my house. Can I be in it? That's so cool. Whereas in London, it's just like, oh, another film shoot. <laughs> so there had to be some sort of, of, of incentive because I couldn't just say like, hey, can you let me shoot there for free? You don't know me, but like, just give it to me. <laughs> like there was no reason that they would say yes to that. And then uh, at the end... There were a few that we couldn't find, and then for, for those locations, we paid. And all in all, I mean, we have 40 folders of footage, which means that we left the house to shoot 40 times, but not every day was a full day. So I think we had like 25 full days, and then sometimes it was just like a pickup or shooting establishers. But all in all, uh, production cost about £4,000. Wow. And I had budgeted it. If I had paid people and done it properly, it would have cost 120,000 pounds. It was, sorry, 40 
like let's say 25 full days of shooting and some pickups spread over how how long oh my god like two years <laughs> ah yeah okay and the funny thing is um that actually in the beginning we had shot almost everything in like two months so i was full-time i was working full-time on it adrian as well the the dp so um I took the money that I was making off corporate video production and just kind of put it in there because I knew I had enough to live for now and I had a bit of like spare money that I was going to invest in the project. So we actually finished almost everything pretty quickly. And then something really cool happened, which is that our main character, Ingvild, she got a role in Star Wars as Princess Leia. <laughs> So that caused a delay that we were not mad about because now Princess Leia was going to star in my show. So she, um, on quite short notice, she had to change her hair color to fit um, Carrie Fisher and um, then dyed. So she's, she had light blonde hair. She had to go dark brown. So she had to dye her hair. We couldn't really sell that in, at that point in the, in the show. So we had to wait for her to kind of go back to her normal looks. And then other people were starting to get work. And also... Adrian and I should have probably <laughs> have gone and gone, gone to look for work because it wasn't that we were broke because it cost so much. It was just because we were investing all of our time into the show and weren't looking, weren't, weren't looking for work, weren't working um, for money. So actually, we all like we also were really broke at one point because you just kind of forget to check your bank account. Um, and then after a few months, I was like, oh, maybe we should like have a little break and do some real work um, for now. And then it was a day here and there over the next two years, just trying to get everybody's schedules to align. Yeah, so it took much longer than anticipated. Yeah, but I think that was also, I mean, looking back, we probably could have done it faster because we, we, we had like a handful of days left to shoot after that first period in 2015. Um, so if circumstances had been a little bit different, it, you know, it would have been fine. Like if I, if I'd had more money, <laughs> uh, which is always the case. If you have, if you can't throw money at a problem, you have to throw time. But it was also that we just took it step by step, or I just took it step by step. So I would organize a shoot for one location and then we'd shoot that. And then I would do pre-production for the next thing because I was doing the jobs of different people. I didn't sit there for a month and do just pre-production, but I did pre-production for a little bit, shot a few days took some time to do pre-production for the other stuff because I was also buying props and costumes and, you know, doing, doing production and scheduling. And I think that that was actually a fairly sustainable way to do it. And had I thought of it, then I could have done a little bit of work, uh, paid work. So, but that's, that's definitely a piece of advice that I would give um, to, to other filmmakers because it can feel so paralyzing when you have this huge project and no money. But if you just take it bit by bit, then the momentum of that is going to keep you going and you're going to be making progress and that's what's motivating. It also means that uh, you manage to keep the people involved motivated. To keep people from staying in a project for two years is a very long time as well. Um, so to get somebody interested in a project, you just have to, you know, smooth talk them a little bit and show that, you know, you, you, you know what you're doing. It's an interesting role. It's something for their show reel that they maybe don't have yet. So for, for Ingvild, she did a lot of like sweet roles and she was excited to get to do like Zoe, who's just like brute force. <laughs> uh, but then throughout the process, you just have to have a good set. So, um, Like I said, you know, feeding people well, having reasonable schedules of, you know, eight to 10 hours, not 16 hours. But then, I mean, 
throughout the, the, the longer process, um, we showed them a few scenes from the show so they would see, you know, what it's, what it's starting to look like because we already started editing uh, while we were shooting. So as soon as we had um, a, a few scenes um, finished, we would give that to our editor and he started working on that. So actually, what, like after we were shooting for two months, we already had a bit edited and being able to show people, you know, what it was going to look like. They were also motivated to finish it because we did most of the work in that first block and then it only took like a day here and there later. So I think that's the reason that people were okay to, to finish it. What I find very interesting and what I'm very curious about is that you didn't... I mean, I think that's what I would have done. That's why I'm asking, but <laughs> because I'm very impatient. But um, you didn't uh, consider finishing the first and second episode, release them, and then, you know, because you mentioned that the, the motivator, the first motivator for relationship was building an audience and yeah. uh, have a, um, a business card. And usually what happens in most uh, web series is that they shoot the first two, three episodes and they start releasing them and just like a podcast. So you create habits and you create momentum and you can also maybe course correct or, you know, that's mm -hmm. the beauty of serialized uh, storytelling. I'm very uh, intrigued by the fact that you've spent two years with all this footage almost uh, ready on your computer and you still haven't had the pleasure to share it with uh, the audience. Yeah, that's a good that's actually a good point. Um the reason that one reason I did it this way is because um that's around this time that's when like Netflix and binging culture happened. So I thought in the beginning my idea was I would maybe release one episode a week or two episodes a week. But times were changing in a way that I didn't think that keeping somebody hooked for that that um, that amount of time was how it worked anymore. So I, I thought that if if I wanted an audience, I needed to dump the whole thing at once and people were going to binge watch it in one sitting. And the other thing was that I'm like one of my values is reliability and I didn't want to put out one episode in like February and say the next one was going to be there in March and then it wasn't because there were so many moving parts that um that I couldn't I couldn't guarantee that everybody was going to be free to do the remaining scenes at any one at any one point in time and also that I just quite liked to work in batches um so first we had the production. Um, and then when we went into post-production, I wanted to do just post-production. So instead of, you know, reviewing the footage and then going back to shoot something, I wanted to, to focus on one thing. I think that's, I think that's one, that's kind of the main reason. I just, I just felt that it made more sense to have a finished product at the end rather than have, you know, like 12% of something uploaded i'm um, for sure but i i, I i'm just uh, impressed because i think it's hard to stay motivated and um i mean i don't know you you wrote relationship at a time where you were in the dating type of process i'm guessing and you were inspired by real life events that then you connected to other type of events to make a story but mm. pretty early on, you actually ended up in a relationship, which is yeah. I, like 
all of a sudden your reality change, maybe your concerns change, maybe, I don't know. And, and I always, one of the things that I find hard about uh, feature filmmaking is the fact that you need to uh, get on board a story that is relevant to you and to the times you're living, hopefully. Mm-hmm. But then it might take seven years or three to seven years to make. And in three to seven years in 2018, or to even the 21st century, you know, it's like yeah. three lifetime almost. Yeah. Like the yeah, the yeah, topics yeah. are changing so quickly. So I, I think your your angle is interesting because I find it different. Also, I can see you're coming from... Um, a branding mindset because you know I think you're the first person who is telling me my one of my value is reliability it's very hard for me to say this word Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but I understand it Um, yeah I mean I think it's interesting because you are really thinking about your project in a bigger picture and it seems like you have this vision of where you want to go Yeah, so one thing that freaks people out is how much I think about death. (laughs) And not in a sad way, so I don't sit there thinking, like, we're all going to die. Which is one way to, you know, to think about it. But for me, I know that time is limited, and I think a lot about what kind of life I want to have. Um, And, like, this is some, like, big shit, you know? (laughs) Um, So I, I, yeah, I like to think about my intentions um when whenever I go in, into anything um that's actually a technique from directing and acting that you know you go into a scene with an intention um you can do the same thing in your real life like when you meet your friend is your is, is your intention to you know make them feel good about themselves or to just catch up or to impress them or whatever so I try to be really intentional with like how I go into the world it doesn't mean that I always succeed like I'm sometimes a problematic person <laughs> just like everybody else But yeah, I think I just have this big picture thinking um, that's just kind of innate to me. I can't really say that like I ever sat down and made like a pros and cons list of like being big picture or being detail oriented. Um, But yeah, I just I think what makes me different from some indie filmmakers is that I have this business mindset. So for me, I don't go into filmmaking just as an artist, but also with this business mindset. So um some art is valuable to exist even if it doesn't bring commercial success and that's like that's for sure and i also have projects where i'm not sure if they're gonna you know be a big hit or if i'm just gonna write them and they're gonna stay in a drawer but i'm i'm glad i did them so bringing this business mindset means that you don't just think about you know your story and and your your artistic in, um, input there but also about like the production and timelines and color coded spreadsheets i love color coded spreadsheets <laughs> um i think that's that's probably just like knowing that i was making progress towards something that was enough for me to to stick to a goal and also like i love when people think that I did the impossible. So the harder it got, I just kept thinking about like how good it's going to feel at the end when I've made this thing and I know that I've made something, that I finished something that through through so many obstacles were like some crew members um, weren't available anymore or some just didn't deliver the work that they said they were going to and we had to start over and we had to start over a bunch of times. But kind of the harder it got, of course, in the in the moment, I was like, why? But overall, I think it was actually kind of motivating that it was so hard to do, but I was just going to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. You know, it's interesting because uh, I think there is a misconception about being an indie filmmaker and being a business um... person. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not even business person, but it's more uh, understanding that there is a side of business that if used wisely is going to help you make the best of your story and stretch yourself. I think I had this uh, understanding and this ha moment when I heard uh, Christine Vachon, you know, the film producer. She produces uh, Todd Haynes' film in, in between other films. And... Uh, she was uh, talking about the fact that Todd Haynes, who, who looks like the, you know, the indie filmmaker, all for the art and uh, everything, you know, she was saying that he's a very, he understands very well the business and he understands the importance, for instance, of having A-list stars to compensate the fact that he's tackling a topic that is not commercial. So yeah. I like this idea of... Maybe the topic you talk about or maybe the directing style you want to use isn't commercial per se, but what can you, what commercial tactics can you leverage to ensure you're going to reach your audience? Because this is, this is it. This is what I mean by commercial at the end of the day. Commercial being being seen, kind of. It's great that you're mentioning it. I'm, I'm having, a, I'm having exactly this, this um, thing that uh, Christine Vachon said really helped me understand that for my feature film, for instance, I need to have... I do love unknown actors. I think it's so great to see someone that is not attached to a story, to a name, to an IMDb report, and just being able to channel with them through the movie. But I understand and I accept now that uh, there needs to be a balance between finding someone who might not be super well-known and at the same time who comes with an audience. Uh, this is the reality mm. of... Uh, if, if I am unknown and my name is not going to drive anyone to see my movie, yeah. someone else needs to do it, basically. I mean, this is... Exactly. You know? It's, uh, it's uh, called reality. My story, as good as it is, is not going to be strong enough. So how can I support mm. it with... Um, so yeah, I'm digressing. Um, no, I have... I actually have a story that's similar to that. So when I was... Um, when I was still living in Germany... So this is about a project that didn't end up happening... But I had a screenplay that was written with one main actress in mind. So one, one main character. I didn't have the actress that I wanted to play this person. But I was working as a crew member. And then I actually became friends with like a really kind of A-list actress in Germany at the time. And the producer that I was working with, um, he said, well, can she play the main character? And I'm like, that doesn't fit at all. And he said, you're going to write her a part. And my first reaction was like, oh my God, no, my story is going to be completely different. I can't fit another part for her in there. But then I thought, you know, like that makes sense because I'm no one and I'm both both the, the writer and director. I was really young at the time. The story was, it was a decent story, but it wasn't like, you know, it was a little bit out there and it totally made sense to put an A-list actress in there. So I think if you're if you're doing that, um, whatever project you're doing, this is also something that I did in every single one of my productions, is that I didn't try to do everything, but I focused on being the director. So in, obviously in relationship, I wore a lot of hats, but um, I still made time to, to prepare really well for directing. And then I got a cinematographer, an editor, a sound designer, uh, a music composer, a colorist. So I didn't try to direct and edit and sound design and find music, but I tried to kind of supplement 
the areas of my inexperience with more experienced people and that's going to always bring you a better product yeah exactly this is uh, this is also something that i've picked up from uh, another uh, first time filmmaker lena khan who made the tiger hunter she she was telling me that uh, you know the best thing to do is to surround yourself with more experienced people and this is exactly what i'm going for right now <laughs> Yeah. So you you're you know that they will rock their part and you just have to rock yours and everything will be fine. Speaking of uh, there is, we are going to somewhere. The tr the I think it's a very good transition to uh, tackle the strategy behind the distribution, the marketing, the audience building for relationships. We already mentioned that it kind of morphed with time and with uh, how the landscape has changed and habits have changed. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. can you walk us through where you're at, what you're thinking and what you're doing about it? So uh, we finished post-production in February this year. And I had booked a, a kind of an industry premiere for um, for for the show in a cinema. One because I wanted to invite people that were in the industry or or others that I wanted to connect with. Because writing somebody an email and saying, "Hey, you seem cool. Let's meet for a coffee" is one thing, but saying, "I made a movie. Come and see it." Um, and it's a real life event that, you know, it, it's, a, it's different. I mean, some, something like that is always going to be a, a bigger draw. And um, hold on, hold on. Let me let me cut you right away. I already yeah. have seven <laughs> questions for this, <laughs> this first step. Tell me you were you, it was a premiere for the first episode for all the episodes. Um, how did you, you know, what did you tell people they were going to come and see? Was it in London? Mm. How much did you pay yeah. for the premiere? All this stuff. I found it very interesting. Yeah. It cost two grand. <laughs> Half of the web series. Half of the, of the production budget, yeah. So I told them that we were going to watch uh, all the episodes of Relationship because, like, it did, it was, because you book a cinema for, like, a screening slot, which is like two, two and a half hours. Um, so there was no point to like show an 11 minute episode in like a fancy cinema. I considered doing half. So I thought maybe I would show half and then put the other half online or something like that to like uh, draw interest. But in the end, I just decided to screen it as, as one whole thing. And we saw it almost like a feature. So obviously there was a title sequence, there were credits, so they were kind of split, but we saw them in one sitting. And it does work as a feature. So if if anybody said for distribution that, you know, a web series doesn't really work, but, you know, could I make it a different format? Then I'd say, yeah, it actually, if we add some more establishing shots um, to, to, to break up certain scenes that are back to back, it would work as a feature. How did you work out how many people to invite? Did you have something afterwards for people to come and meet you and talk with you? Or? Yeah, so I only invited people that I knew or that I was interested in connecting with. So it wasn't for the public. So we had, I think, like 50, 55 people. And it was, I didn't tell I didn't tell people that it was free drinks because I wanted to see what come like free alcohol. <laughs> But yeah, we, we screened the, the show. Uh, we had a Q&A with me, the DP, and the uh, two lead actresses. And then we had like a, a drinks reception so I could, I could talk to people and that was honestly like, one of the nicest nights of my life and actually I was I was or am um, on sabbatical from my corporate work um, and I went home to Germany so that I could focus on finishing relationship because 
at some point you do need to be full time on it because you're reviewing five people's work. So I've seen every episode like 80 times. <laughs> so I actually went home to, to finish uh, the show and then um, do a, a rewrite of Creme Brulee that's going to be done in, probably by the time this podcast comes out, actually. I actually took quite a drastic step and said, you know, living in London is really expensive. I do need to do a lot of work um, to support myself here. I'm just going to take a break, go home and finish these two things um, to kind of propel my career forward. How long ago have you, did you go into sabbatical? Uh, November. Okay, so you, you, you work like three, four months full time on the project for the premiere? Yeah, and because of because of people's schedules in post-production, some were like going on vacation and it was it was quite a quite a sprint at the end so I was up really late a few nights um, until until we finished it and we actually booked um, the premiere before all the episodes were finished so there was an external deadline <laughs> um, and then we finished it like a few days before the premiere was actually going to happen and some people might not know this but when you're showing something in a cinema it has to be in a certain format so we had a DCP made Um, because we couldn't just connect our laptop there like a you know like an overhead projector kind of thing. Um, we had to get a DCP made, which took like 48 hours, um, and then the cinema needed it to test before we had the premiere. So it was quite stressful in in the lead up, but that's why then the premiere was like the the greatest payoff that it could have been. And I was really nervous before that. Um, on the evening but actually like people arrived quite early which was so nice to see like people cared um, and I talked to everyone before we went into the screening room and I realized that they were all there because they thought I'd done something good and they were being supportive so nobody was there and like I want other filmmakers to know this nobody is going to hate watch your movie like nobody is going to pay for a ticket just to then tell you like oh I really wanted to see you embarrass yourself So that's a kind of a, a psychological thing that, that made a difference to me to realize that like all these people were like pro relationship. Yeah. And then we had a really good Q&A. People asked really good questions. And then it went on the festival circuit. So I have one more question about the premiere. And then I, I want to, mm -hmm. I mean, I have a couple of more questions about the premiere, actually. The first question is, how many people did you send the invite to? Because I, I, when I made the first mentorless meetup, by the way, I had no idea what I was doing. I still don't know because I, I didn't become an expert since. And, you know, I was just telling people, yeah. send me an email if you're coming. And I received like 20 people telling me I'm coming, which I, I was like, wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And then I was with my uh, friend, Enrica. I don't know if you remember. She, she used to be a, a yeah, yeah. commercial producer. And she told me, mm -hmm. you know, I need to tell you something. We were on the way to come to the pub. And she was like... Usually, uh, if one third of the people who say yes come, it's a good uh, ratio. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. oh, fuck, you know what's going to happen? Nobody's going to come. And, and it turned out that a lot of people came that time. But I had other meetups where this proved right. So did you invite, did you have like 150 yes for 55 people or how did it work? No, the problem was um, that because it was an open space, I had um, a certain number of seats. So I couldn't just like overbook. And because we only, you know, confirmed the day like two weeks before, I think one or two weeks before, that was actually quite a stressful part because I would, um, obviously I told cast and crew because they deserve to be there. Um, obviously they were going to be there and told them to confirm if they're coming. And then I went kind of by priority. So people that were, you know, in production or, um, 
people that kind of could make a difference to my career if they saw and liked it. I emailed them first, um, waited for them to say yes or no, put them down into my color-coded spreadsheet, and then continued asking people. So first, I only asked as many people as there were seats. And then when people said no, then I would ask more. And it was like, it was pretty good because only... Only, I think, three to five people didn't show up. And, like, I'll never speak to them again. <laughs> yeah, that, that's really good. It's, a, it's the biggest uh, risk you can take, basically, booking a place. Yeah. And yeah. people are overbooked. They say yes to three events. It's rainy. They're yeah. tired. They, and they don't come. Yeah, I was really on their case um, and, and asking people if they're really, really going to come. I wasn't annoying them, but I just checked in. I, was, I, just, I said, you know, I just want to double check that you're coming because it's a guest list situation. And two people, I remember, most one she had just flown in from Boston in the morning and she came to my premiere in the evening all jet-lagged I was, I was so touched and impressed by that and then another person she came in her ski jacket straight from the airport from her skiing trip so from the airport she came to my premiere and this kind of stuff I mean I'll never forget that you know that's that's a statement was this screening did this screening have a direct impact did having all this pro bring something up, something practical you can mention? Or was it just a good opportunity for you to show your work and time will tell if this screening is making a difference? Um, I mean, both. For, for a lot of my corporate um, video clients that, I mean, some of them are, you know, quite, quite serious and in industries where they probably wouldn't appreciate something with a swear word in the title. But, but some were like, you know, creatives from agencies that I wanted to reconnect with that I used to work with. And I wanted to kind of remind of my existence. A few of them came and then I actually really reconnected with one. Um, it's a weird thing how I met her, but I met her during a production and she's, she's a, like a clienty kind of person. And we got along really well on the shoot. And it turns out that like we both wanted to keep in touch, but we thought it was kind of awkward to, to, to ask each other if we wanted to go out for coffee. So then two years after that, I sent her the invite to the premiere and she came and um, she introduced me to some of her, her colleagues. And like we're talking regularly now and then clients that I had worked for before when they heard that I had made this thing for four grand. I made sure to, you know, to have the pitch, like if I can do this for 4,000 pounds, imagine what I can do for your clients. <laughs> I think that was so much um, more effective than if I had sent an email saying, hey, here's my new reel. You know, I think it's quite brilliant, actually, because, I mean, of course, it works because it's London. There's a lot of players there. Uh, yeah. So if you're, you know, in another town, it would be more complicated. And then if your network is in another town, even more so. But I love the fact that for sure now everything is sent by email and people need to kind of make time during two tasks to watch something. Yeah. And this idea of treating it as seriously as you want people to treat it, basically, that's what mm, you did. You, exactly. You, you said, I've spent through two and a half years on this project I'm putting the money to receive you properly as a guest to watch my work. And I think this, this is a big, big statement. It's great. Mm. It's very smart. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks. I'm just thinking that this is something, if some people have made some work that didn't go into festivals or stuff like that, but this is such a good way to leverage if you have some a little bit more dollars to spend on or euros mm. or pounds. It's such a good way because this is also building your professional card. Yes. Well, one thing one thing that I want to recommend for people who don't have the money to spend is one thing that you can do to make 
premieres around the world without spending a lot of money is have people host living room screenings. So you send somebody either a link to download it or you send them a hard copy and then they invite their friends to their house. Maybe you send them some microwave popcorn or something and then they watch your work. Maybe they give you a photo that you can post on social media like, oh, relationships playing in, I don't know, San Diego or whatever. That's a really inexpensive way to attribute your work if you don't have um, success or you don't want to go the festival route. Because there's two things that are important in distribution, which I learned from Emily Best from Seed and Spark. She said that in the big festivals, you're hoping to get the attention from producers, distributors. But if you're going to smaller local festivals people who are buying tickets to go to a festival in their town they can become fans of your work especially if there's like a Q&A and they get to know you I mean that's audience building that doesn't compare to somebody like clicking like on your YouTube video because somebody is interested in film and they went to that film festival and maybe they ask questions and that's a way to to, to build like a long-term audience for your career. So you took this idea and transposed it into offering people to uh, make screenings into their uh, home, uh, into their uh, house? Yeah. So that's one thing that um, it hasn't happened yet, just because there are some some other uh, like distrib- distribution things that I wanted to do, like putting together a pitch pack that I could send to people with um, like a, um, a normal trailer is like 90 seconds long and you don't give away everything that's for the public. And then there's like business to business trailers. They're like five to six minutes and they show you like, it's like a treatment for a feature film, but in video form. So you just show like a summary of the whole show or movie. Um, so so that's what I've, what I've been working on to be able to, to send um, those kind of pitches to, to people. But that, so that's on, on the business end. And then for the for the audience building end, that's definitely something that I that I want to do because that doesn't violate your premiere status because it's not a public screening where people have already seen it, but it's like you know five five ten people in a living room. So then you don't violate your exclusivity clause for for festivals and distribution. Okay, so it's clear that you're going for <laughs> festivals and distribution. Yes. <laughs> so now what I want to know is a what what is available for a web series? What are your uh, what is your strategy? What what do you have in mind? What are you looking for? So initially when I started making relationship, the idea was to put it online for free on YouTube and like get some subscribers and then be able to show people that I can direct stuff. But with everybody that came along, we had a really good cast and crew. Obviously, Ingvild, she was in Star Wars. Um, we had actors who are known um, in, in UK TV, so Hollyoaks, um, Casualty, those kind of things. And Marcella, Ben Hoor, Mission Impossible, Avengers. Like They had really good credits. Um, some they got before we started shooting, but some actually came while we were shooting. So I was quite lucky with the timing there. And also technically, I mean, there's some technical aspects that I think are subpar. So I don't know if that is going to be our stumbling block, but it actually, it did turn out better than than most web series that you see online for free. So I do want to try and and offer it to to distributors at least, um, because nowadays there's so many more avenues. Like in the UK, um, for instance, there's something called Blaps on Channel 4. So that's, I think, a total of like 11 minutes of footage. That's a digital thing where you can get reach for some like a series that's 11 minutes long. You can't re- that's not a distribution candidate really, but that exists now. So I'm I'm sending it to to distributors that are maybe gonna say you know nice work. Let us know what your next thing is, or they might say you know we're interested in actually doing something with relationship as is. There's so I mean there's so many things that could happen. They could say 
we like it, but it's not, not up to us standards. Can we reshoot the whole thing? I mean, that could happen. <laughs> How do you find the distributors that might be a good target for your uh, for relationships? Generally, it's a better idea to like make contact in person rather than emailing them because a lot can't uh, accept un unsolicited material for legal reasons so that you can like sue them for copying your stuff. So I'll send it to Abdul. Maybe he'll he'll say, you know, that's impressive, but nah. <laughs> or maybe he'll have an idea on, on what to do with it. Or, you know, people in, in that sphere might know um, other people or other uh, distributors that fit your project a bit better. So that's that's one thing. I mean, I'm not putting a lot of kind of my emotional investment onto that. It's just I never planned to go the distribution route like that. But because somebody said, you know, maybe there's there's no harm in asking if you have that personal contact and it feels appropriate to ask them. And the other thing is there are so many festivals um, right now. If you just Google like good web series festival, you're going to get a lot of hits. Really? I didn't know. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you um, if you go on Film Freeway, which is there's without a box, I like um, Film Freeway, you just make your project and then you can um, browse festivals that accept web series. Let me see if I can... Yeah, so there's uh, New York Television Film Fest, Toronto Web Fest, uh, New Orleans Film Festival, Melbourne Web Fest, Web Fest Berlin, Rain Dance, Sicily Web Fest, Marseille, New York City wow. Web Fest, ITV Web Fest. So there's so much now for web series that I think if I had finished Relationships sooner, maybe that would have been too early because, you know, it wasn't the, the world wasn't ready for web series as, as such. Um, So that's another thing. So submitting it to festivals, um, that obviously takes, you know, a long time to review. So, the, you know, the, it, it's rolling deadlines. So maybe like within a year, we're going to have heard back from from other stuff. So there's nothing that I am like super invested in happening with it. I'm just pursuing all the avenues that feel appropriate. And for me, the best case scenario is if somebody sees it and says, hey, what's your... Do you, what's your next project or um, how would you like to work as an episodic director on, on another project? So the value of having a finished web series isn't necessarily that somebody buys your web series. It can happen, but it could also just happen that, like I said, it becomes your calling card and you get hired for somebody else or, or you just get a foot in the door with a distributor who isn't interested in this thing but now they know you and maybe you can start a contact that way. That's very clear, actually. <laughs> uh, no, it's true. So I, I do have, um, I have three more questions for you. What are the lessons you, you take with you from relationships for your next projects, if any? Uh, do you mean things that I would do differently? I mean, it can be things you would do differently or things you would repeat. What did you learn? What, what was the growth part of the pro project that you will carry on with you for the next one? It is very difficult to find a good sound recordist for free and sound makes a big difference. So that's one thing that I, where I see the, the a really big potential for improvement in relationship is uh, seeing sound in a few, in a few scenes. So actually, if you're an independent filmmaker, maybe try to schedule around sound recordists. So that sounds crazy because there are things like locations and cast and actors, but I wouldn't go very far scheduling without having a sound recordist there because that's one member of crew that a lot of people don't think about in the beginning. But then when you get the footage, you're like, oh no. <laughs> because you shot some scenes without a sound recordist? Well, we shot some scenes with somebody who did sound, but they weren't necessarily like very 
experienced or very good or had ever done it before. Yeah, and that's quite like you. People think they can do that job, but that's not true. There's a lot of things that you need to um, keep in mind to do good location sound. So that's one thing. Another is that I would have liked to have a dedicated social media person with a goal of obviously building an audience. That's an avenue that you have to kind of pay attention to. And we do have, you know, social media channels, but I post there when I have time or I can schedule a little bit of stuff in advance, but it would have been really good to have somebody take behind the scenes photos saying, Hey, we're on, on location today. This is what we're doing or curate stuff from the internet that fits with our tone and just somebody on social media and growth. And maybe also like somebody who starts marketing before we even started the project. Yeah. So that's that's something that also easily falls by the wayside because you're so swept up in production and organizing everything that needs to be done for that that you maybe don't consider that actually the moment you start your project is the moment that you should start marketing. Yeah, but also what is hard with this point because I think it's a, it's a very interesting point. For instance, when uh, my producer got on board for my first feature, um, when she got on board and I decided to make the YouTube videos and then we, we hired someone to make a website. And, you know, the thing is that when you start, if you start marketing, when you start your project and if it's this type of long term project, how long can you sustain financially to keep on having either someone dedicated to marketing or you doing yeah. the marketing? Because... I think that the hardest point is when to start social media and marketing for a project that doesn't have a clear uh, finished date. That's very, very yes. hard. That's been one for us as well, because in some cases I did say a deadline or say when I thought we were going to be finished and then we weren't for reasons that were outside of my control. Um, and that doesn't look good. And especially with my, with my intended brand of reliability, you know, that, um, that bothered me for sure to, to not keep, um, self-imposed deadlines, even, even though I, I said them myself. So now I finished the show. I'm not finished with the show as such because, um, you know, now I'm sending pitches to bloggers. I'm on podcasts like this one. I was on the radio last week. So this is a completely new skill set that I, as a director, I enjoy it. I love talking about um, that project and I love um, sharing, you know, what I learned from it. And I love listening to other um, filmmakers doing that as well. But that's, I mean, directing and being interviewed are two very separate skill sets. And I think nowadays, creators of every kind, they need to learn marketing and social media and PR. And some people resent that, which I can understand. Um, for me, it's just like, I don't mind it, but it takes a lot of time. So like you said, um, that's something that a lot of people don't budget for. Yeah. And, uh, also they don't necessarily know where to start, how to start at the end of the day, you, I asked you to share your story because you were done, of course, and the timing was yeah. right for uh, the yeah. podcast. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a timing issue, but there's also this uh, little event that uh, four years ago we met. Uh, exactly. And we've never seen each other uh, since, but we became a patron of each other, which is very funny. And actually, yes. I mean, this is my uh, penultimate question, I think we say. Um, <laughs> in March 2014, when we met, mm -hmm. I mentioned Patreon because I had uh, read uh, Amanda Palmer, The Art of Asking, which you have in your... Uh, Love that book. You have it on the relationship. It made me laugh, actually. Indeed. Yes. yes. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's a good filmmaker. 
So Amanda Palmer, I think, was the one who raised awareness about Patreon, which is this website I've talked on the show before, uh, where it's like Kickstarter forever. Basically, you're not supporting a project, you're supporting a creator. And uh, you were the only one back then, four years ago, who knew about it when I mentioned it. And now you're also the only other filmmaker I know who is having a Patreon. And by that, I mean that Adam Westbrook, who was the guest, uh, the first uh, guest on uh, the podcast, he also has a Patreon, but he is uh, make he was making video essays. I, I'm not sure where he's uh, heading now. And he was charging people per project. Uh, you and I were charging people per month. I, I actually started my Patreon like t two months ago, mm -hmm. four years later. And you do have one as well. So I am very, very interested about you telling me a little bit about it, if you don't mind, because four years ago, we also I, I told you, yeah, Ivy, if you want to write a guest post about Patreon for filmmakers, because we were kind of saying how as a filmmaker, when you don't produce things for so long, it yeah. can you can spend years without having anything but i'm working on my screenplay how yeah. can you make people want to invest in you and give you their hard earned money for you to work on your screenplay that might not mm. even be good so how is it going for you how long uh, has it been how do you how do you like it yeah so i what what i appreciate most about patreon obviously the money helps but the fact that people are choosing to pay for content when there's so much free content um, on the internet already is a huge motivator. So like you, I also struggled with the question, how do I make this worthwhile if making a film project? I mean, if I worked really fast, I could do it in three months. But after that, I'd need a vacation. Like that would, you know... <laughs> Um, so that's, that's the fastest that you can, that you can do something. And also it's not really something that I can do by myself. So you need to have, uh, you need to have a crew, you need to pay for locations there, you know, you need at least like five people for, for anything that you do. So obviously the financial investment that is needed is much larger than for maybe, uh, a poet. So you can write a poem by yourself and then just upload it. So it's that, I think I am still figuring out what good rewards are. So like you, I used to I used to do or I do the videos, but from my um, analytics, I see... So the videos are that you and I post video vlogs about what we accomplished that week or that month and talk a little bit about the process. But from my analytics um, and yours as well, like you shared, people don't actually watch them that much. So they might actually prefer the written updates. So my my levels are that the patron only feed at the at the $2 mark that's written. And then at the $10, you get a weekly video. And then at the 25, you get all of the above and you get a character named after you. Then there's live hangouts, visits to set. But it's it's an ongoing challenge to figure out what you can give to people that is, uh, that is worth it to them. But... What I've also found is that some people don't actually pay you as like a transaction where like you give them a product and then they pay you for it. They just want to be part of the process at ground level. 
So I think some some of my patrons maybe they don't even you know go and read or or, or watch um, what I've been up to. They just want to be a part of it. That's actually a feeling I've been having, and even I as a patron, what I realized is that if there's too many updates, I won't read them all because I don't have time. Which is why I went on a monthly type of update instead of a weekly, and also just because I feel I'm interested because you're producing a lot of content just for your patrons yeah how much time is it taking for you to do all this um about half a day per week because i have been wanting to do like a real vlog um and i i plan to do that with my next um short film so one of the few short films that i'm doing is called simon and i'm doing it in the summer and i want to have um you know vlogs about that whole process so there's an interesting story about how i got the script it's not something i wrote it's something that i got from somebody else the casting process which was exciting because i asked somebody who thought who i thought she was going to say no and she said that's the best script i've read in a while i would love to do that with you and then the casting process production post-production i want to do vlogs about all that because I love that kind of stuff so I love watching you know people's behind the scenes I love I mean this is super nerdy maybe but I love watching people uh, seeing people's time logs so when they say you know this week I spent nine hours of screenwriting and then four hours on this project and then I was in the gym for this many hours I love that kind of stuff so for me that's that's content that's valuable but um those vlogs for me, makes sense to be public. So that would be more something that, you know, I have on, um, online as content to draw people towards me because it's not like I have a page, a Patreon following that's so huge that I, you know, live just for them or that it, that, that it's enough to, to sustain me completely. So it is, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big question because I also feel like if somebody is giving me $10 a month, there has to be some sort of incentive. Like for me, I, I do look at levels sometimes because with my favorite creators, I do want to see them on video and I do want to know more about their behind the scenes process. At the same time, I also appreciate as a creator that that, that takes a lot of time and a lot of focus. So sometimes it's not even the, the question if you have time because with 168 hours in a week, I can do five hours of Patreon, sure. But then that's something I need to think about. That's something I need to focus on. That's another five hours I'm sitting in front of a computer. So I have been thinking about how I can um, how I can create more public content, but also more premium content. I don't have an answer to that yet. It's an interesting uh, journey, I feel. And I, mm. I also feel it's an interesting journey when you have an individual that gives you $20 per month. That's huge. I mean, to yeah. me, this is huge that someone would give $20 yeah. uh, for me. And at the same time, if it takes you four hours to produce something for this $20, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you know, it's a paradox because... It's not, yeah, so it's four hours per week, uh, which means I get $5 minus the fees. So I get like $4. Do you work on... Uh, Sharing about Patreon, telling people you have a patron, uh, you know, asking people to join or... It's, it's a, Patreon is a, is a funny one because you're not asking people to contribute to a project, you're asking them to contribute to you. Um, I mean, some people do project specific, but that's, def that's something that some people are, you know, sensitive about. And, and I notice it as well because I don't want to post, you know, hey, I have a Patreon, put some money in it. So one thing I did is... Um, that I used some of the some of the money that I made on Patreon that month for like new 
camera accessories so that my vlogs weren't webcam anymore. I could do them with my work camera um, and they looked a lot better. So that's one thing that I posted. And I said, thanks to Patreon, it went from looking from like this to this. So that's uh, that's something tangible. But yeah, promoting it, it feel, like I don't want to just say, you know, I have a Patreon all the time. So I say it maybe like once a month. Um, and then I have it like I started do, I started writing a blog because ivy.com um, where there's like a button on the side. Um, and that's how I sometimes discover um, people's Patreons is because I read their blog and I love their content. And um, I just want to either I want more of that content or I just want to support them because, you know, if I bought a newspaper, I would pay for that newspaper. Um, I try to support creators who are doing something that I want to see more of in the world. So there's one creator, Nicole Antoinette. She has a podcast called Real Talk Radio, and they have these intimate conversations about just like life. Um, so the same way that we are having an intimate conversation about the filmmaking process, that's about, you know, life. So instead of being like, 10 life hacks, or this is how to fix yourself. Um, she had like these real vulnerable conversations. I think that's important in the world. So instead of my Audible subscription, I canceled my Audible subscription and I signed up to her um, on Patreon. So I think wherever you put your money is supporting the kind of world you want to build. Again, this is a big picture thinking thing. But that's the way I approach um, Patreon as well, because I do want to see more of a certain type of creation, and I'm, I want to contribute to that with, with my finances. I think that's great. I'm a big believer as well of, uh, you know, Patty Smith says people have the power. Your word of mouth, how you spend your money, how you spend your time. If you watch illegally all the indie films and you pay for uh, all the 3D and big action films because they look better on a theater screen, sure, but understand that this is the way you're voting for the type of world we're heading toward. So yeah. I really, really, uh, you know, of course I connect with this because I am doing the same thing. So <laughs> it would be weird <laughs> of me saying that I disagree. But I think it's very, it's a very uh, good way to uh, wrap up this episode because this is all about being intentional in the way you create yeah. and in the way you <laughs> behave. Uh, and uh, I, I believe that being a filmmaker or a storyteller is... Uh, is a lifestyle that asks for uh, balance. I mean, I don't know. We need to lead by behaving and creating the way we hope to see things unfold as well. I want to thank you very much for taking the time and being transparent, which is something I always say to my guests, but I think that uh, it's something we need to uh, commend because it's it's hard to be brave and to to show the things the way they are. If people would want to follow you, you mentioned the blog, you have uh, socials. Can you briefly let us know where they can find you? What's the best way for them to connect with you? Yes. So you can find me on becauseivy.com and my Twitter and Instagram are also becauseivy. Um, relationship specifically is relationship.tv. And there you can also sign up for a newsletter to find out when it's available to view. Perfect. So I will put everything, of course, on the website. Thank you for being here, Ivy. Thank you so much for having me. This episode was produced and edited by me, Nathalie Sejean. The music was created by French artist Soul of Bear. You can discover their techno universe on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Soul of Bear. You can find all the show notes along with all the previous episodes on mentorless.com slash podcast. 
Thank you so much for sticking around until the end of this episode and the season. And once again, if you'd like to know more about the short film I'm currently working on, Chloe, that I will shoot in a few weeks in Istanbul, Turkey, you can go to chloe.mentorless.com. You'll find all the relevant information, including how to join and support the project. Thank you again, and until next time. Mm-hmm.